Yo, partnership alert, partnership alert, partnership alert. Living Corporate has a partnership with LinkedIn Learning, an American massive open online course provider that provides video courses taught by industry experts across a wide array of subjects. Now, the partnership is because Living Corporate has courses on LinkedIn Learning focused on diversity, equity, inclusion for leaders, career professionals, and anyone really looking to upskill themselves and be better allies. So make sure you check out our courses on LinkedIn Learning by clicking the link in the show notes. And let's just say you don't want to do that. You go to LinkedIn Learning on LinkedIn, search Living Corporate. We'll be right there. All right. Peace. What's up, y'all? This is Zach with Living Corporate. Now, look, every week, you know, we're coming with incredible conversations, frankly, across our entire network from Liberated Love Notes to the Leadership Range to the Access Point to the Group Chat to the Break Room to our flagship show here. And today is really no different, except it's a little different because this interview is long. I ain't gonna hold you. We had a really good conversation. Uh, Rucha Katoshin and I um, had a really good dialogue about just... Uh, not only her latest book, but just like in the landscape of diversity, equity, inclusion, the reality of um, non-black folks um, in DEI spaces and balancing or really honoring the legacy of black leadership and black thought leadership, particularly black women. If you're not a black woman in these work, in these works and in these spaces, um, we have, it's a very broad, like just a far reaching conversation we had all of it about diversity, equity, inclusion, all of it about leadership, all of it about purpose and identity. So I'm really excited to get into it because it's so long. I don't even want to give y'all too much lead in. So we're going to tap in with Tristan. You're going to hear this conversation between uh, Ruchika and myself, and then we're going to let y'all go. Okay. All right. See you soon. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan back again to bring you another career tip. This week, I want to talk to you about how you can gain some clarity on what you want to do for a career while also gaining some new skills. With many people out of work due to COVID-19, now's a great time to gain some new skills, knowledge, and contacts to set yourself up to get back to work or to change careers. Many of us are looking to invigorate or reinvent our careers, but aren't sure how to do it. One of the ways I always suggest is taking on a couple of projects outside of work. You can sign up for sites like Upwork, Fiverr, Thumbtack, and more that have sprung up to support the gig economy. Maybe you've wanted to break into social media marketing or sharpen your skill sets in sales. These sites offer an opportunity to set up a profile, bid on jobs, and have people request your services. You get to set and negotiate your rates, helping you sharpen yet another skill set. All of the projects you take on do not have to be in direct alignment with your current or potential new career path. These are great opportunities to expose yourself to new and different types of work while gaining clarity on how you work best and what you may or may not want to do more long term as a career. If you decide to go down this route, remember that you are gaining real world experience. Therefore, you want to create a project section on your resume to include the relevant projects and showcase your new skills. When writing your bullet points, focus on the value you've provided and the results you've created. This will show a hiring manager or recruiter that you are taking the initiative to learn new skills and test them out in the real world. 
Taking on projects is a great way to clarify what you want to do while earning some additional cash. They also help you position yourself to either re-enter the workforce or potentially pivot your career. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Ruchika, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me today. You know, it's a pleasure to have you back. You know, not to bury the lead, I'm excited to talk about your book in a little bit. I know that it came out um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but, you know, it's interesting as I as I think about your book and just the work that you're doing in your your own company and the consulting that you do. It's kind of like I feel like we're com- we're still in the season where everyone's trying to kind of hit a lick off of diversity and inclusion. Right. Like everyone's still trying to kind of. It seems as if there's this, um, I don't know, like where everyone's all of a sudden was a, um, a diversity and inclusion expert. You're so right, Zach. I mean, I think this is, I would say this is what's um, been a really interesting thing about this whole time. I mean, I feel like since 2020, um, there's been a huge rush into this field. It is, it's, it's frustrating. It's confusing I'll say it's frustrating on the one hand um, because I see a lot of harm being done when folks you know don't really understand what's at stake clearly just think it's you know sort of something you can rush into because it's lucrative it's trendy Um, and by the way when I say lucrative I mean for some and it's trendy and then I think not not recognizing and not having the self-awareness to recognize the harm that's done when people who aren't really invested in this work and who haven't been grounded in it for so long and don't have this sort of historical understanding and context. So there's that side, which is really tough to watch. And and then sometimes that, that makes me feel like I need to defend my position, especially if around people who may not be familiar with who I am and my work. And then on the other hand, maybe the, the part of me that does feel a little bit excited is at least I don't have to constantly keep explaining what this is. And I do remember a time where I was asked, you know, why is diversity important? And, you know, what does inclusion mean? And, you know, why should we care and give me the data? And the good news is there's much less of that. There's still some, of course, you know, it's not, I mean, it's not magical, but there's less of that. So it's a very confusing time to be in this industry i'm curious what do you think oh I, you know i'll i'll say i think that you know i think capitalism continues to really reign supreme right like i think and and i think that it's it's scary that like we continue to exploit you know black black and brown thought leadership for for financial gain like this season has been just uh kind of gross right I've, and i've mm. talked about that to like talked about this a few different times it's like you look outside and it's like everyone is talking about diversity and inclusion and like very few, if any, are really connecting the dots to actual organizational change. And then I also think like you're like, especially since the summer of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd um, and all of the protests and things of that nature. um, I think also like, you know, a lot of language, a lot of kind of fluffy language has now become mainstream. And so people Mm -hmm. I've I've listened to like conversations where people just string together, like a bunch of different multi-syllable 
diversity or quote unquote diversity inclusion words mm-hmm. and it sounds really good but it's like okay what did you actually say like the, mm-hmm. intersection, the intersectionality of our reckoning with the decompartmentalization of our communities or whatever it's just like what are we actually talking about right now you know what i mean yeah you're so right and you know something that's come up in my mind a lot and i'm going to explore a little bit of it in my writing because it's been a little bit damaging honestly and painful in a way that i was not expecting but something that's been on my mind a lot is the use of the word ally as a noun, um, not a verb, and actually seeing very problematic behaviors from people who are supposed to be, you know, our quote unquote allies who are in this work because they really believe in it, supposedly. And then you see the harm that's done when there's fragility, when there is um, even an opportunity in many ways to amplify and pass the mic to. And for me specifically, I think, you know, the mic needs to be held by certainly, um, you know, brown people, but really led by by black people and especially black leaders in the, you know, in the social justice space, right? Like forget diversity, equity and inclusion for a moment, but really justice. And what what's become really difficult to see in the last few years is also that use of ally as a noun, you know, I'm an ally and therefore whatever I do doesn't, you know, it, it like my intentions don't matter. I'm uh, sorry, my impact doesn't matter. It's only my intentions that matter. And that has been really on my mind a lot as we think about what does it look like to make true organizational change? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I am so sick of of that term ally. Like there are people, especially over the last couple of years, and even you know, a handful of folks this year who will introduce themselves to me and be like, "I just want you to know I'm an ally in this space." And every time people say that to me, I'm like, <laughs> "I'm like, okay, if you're an ally, cool. Like, can you can you invest a hundred thousand dollars in a living corporate? <laughs> like, like, what are you saying? Like, I don't know you, and and like, and you know, ally, you're absolutely right. Like, allyship is not a noun; it is a verb. It's an action that you actually take. Mm-hmm. You know, like what resources? Like investing a hundred thousand dollars. Like, a, in living like investing a hundred thousand yes. dollars in living corporate. Yeah. Introduce yeah. introducing me to a, introducing me to your your literary agent. So right. I have I have th- three different books I'd like to write. Like there's all types of things. Like actually, you know, leveraging and providing leveraging your mm-hmm. brand and uh, mm-hmm. sharing your capital and resources is mm-hmm. a is a as a as allyship. All of this stuff around like you know you wanting to just kind of be. I don't know, like just you want to pat on the back or whatever. Like I'm, you know, and I we I talked about this even like a couple of years ago and George Floyd was murdered. It was like, mm-hmm. like I don't I don't need you to check in with me. Like I have friends. Like I have people that look mm-hmm. like me. But I, actually, I have a community of people that like know me and who've known me for years. Like I'm I'm not gonna call you, uh, Stan from accounting. I'm gonna talk to my friends, right? <laughs> uh, and like I, don't, <laughs> I can imagine Stan from accounting coming up to you. And saying, "Listen, but I'm an ally," right. <laughs> and you're like, "Where do I even begin?" Right. And from accounting, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I think you know this the the idea of just sharing, right? Like of like really being willing to give up space and give up something for and like and not to not to helicopter over the person when you give it to me, but give it to them and back up. Like that is, that's rare. Right. But like, 
and and that's what when I just talk about like when I when I go in, I just talk about capitalism. I just see all these things that just all inextricably linked. Like a friend of mine, his name is Eric. He's he said, uh, you know, capitalism is white supremacy in action. Right? It's like it's just like the inherent the inherent action of just like of exploiting and exploiting folks' thoughts and time and their labor for your own gain. And like you know, and so it's hard for us to like decouple ourselves from from that mindset, like we're always, okay, what's in it for me? How am I, how can I get up on this? How can I get over as, and so this, and like scarcity, like the attitude of like, Hey, there's only so much to go around. I can't, I can't give you X amount of dollars. I can't give you, I can't give you my contact to my literary agent because, you know, maybe I want to write a, a few more books in a couple months, or oh I can't gosh. share, I can't share clients with you because, you know, these are my relationships. And what if I lose business because you do something wrong? Like there's, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's really easy for that for that mindset and for those attitudes to just kind of like permeate what we do, like this spirit of this attitude of competition and needing to like defeat everybody, right? So like, I don't know. It's just it's tough, right? And I, and I also say mm-hmm. like, you know, this as I look around, like I'm pivoting out of um, you know, I've pivoted out of consulting and I'm into mm-hmm. I'm in the tech space and I'm just I'm seeing mm-hmm. I'm seeing how white supremacy shows up in these spaces as well. You know what I mean, like. Like, you know, there's no there's no industry or space like in this capitalistic context that isn't plagued by, mm. you know, these problems. And so mm. what I see when I when I think about diversity, equity, inclusion and like in this work is so much right now is like focused on how to how to commoditize, um, how to commercialize this work and how to, you know, how to make it appeasing and appealing to, mm. you know, to the to the audiences, to the masses for again, for commercial gain. Um, I've seen folks like claim products mm. and solutions do something to solve for diversity and inclusion and they don't do it at all right but it's but it's a way to make money right it's a way mm. to to get over um and so it's tough right I, I, like truly it's tough let me ask you this though like you know you talk about like because of this era and this climate like you haven't had to explain your work or the or why you're doing the work i've also seen you like write a few different things on linkedin in mm. different talks where you talk about like the propensity for orgs to pursue non-black thought mm. leaders and speakers for mm. EI work. Like talk mm. to me about like how you like mm. how do you reconcile the fact that like you're not a black mm-hmm. person, but you're also not mm-hmm. a you're not a white woman either. Like what does it look like for you to be who you are in this space? And mm. how how do you reconcile maybe if there's the the spoken or unspoken tension of being of again not being black doing this work and perhaps mm. um being chosen over other qualified uh, mm. or competent black uh, women and men mm. and trans non-binary folks in this space? Mm. Mm. Yeah, this, that's such a great question. And it, I think it actually relates to a little bit what you were talking about earlier, because the, the way that capitalism has uh, created the system and really white supremacy in action. So thank you, Eric, for saying that. Um, shout out to Eric here, whom I don't know, but but what you said is extremely magical and extremely true and painful as well at the same time. Um, essentially, you know, so when I think about my role as a non-Black woman, um, an immigrant to this country is I, I, I firstly I want to talk about the importance of collaboration and for me that is really the most important part of what I do and I I don't see my work as anything else 
if if I don't see it as valuable unless it's collaborative, unless it actually pays homage to, amplifies, builds opportunity, builds um, ways for Black women specifically, and and women of color from other marginalized identities, intersexual marginalized identities, um, to to be able to also lead and to also be able to be amplified. So in some ways, I actually see it as a failure if, for example, I'm asked to come into an organization and speak, or I'm asked to, I, I don't consult so often anymore, but when I do, um, or even as I as I continue, you know, long-standing projects that I've had for years, I actually see it as a failure if the outcome or part of the growth isn't that this organization, for example, that I'm consulting with will actually be able to name, hey, we need to hire, promote, advance, and ensure more Black women, for example, are in leadership. You know, I see it as a failing if I'm asked to come in and speak and I say to an organization, you know, could you share with me your plans for for ensuring that more Black women and other marginalized women of color are in leadership positions? What are your thoughts? What, what are you actually doing? And they're not able to do that. I see that as a failing on the work that I do. So for me, I think everything that I do, really, my focus is on amplification and collaboration. I also think that one of the challenges of white supremacy that has happened and and reigned for so long is dividing us i mean literally this was a strategy that the british you, you know the british colonizers used around the world when they came over and took our land in so many countries but especially in india and their strategy was divide and conquer so by the way i never say that whenever whenever it's time to you know get some work done or where I'm trying to split up work, I'll always say, let's either divide and simplify or I'll come up with other words, but I'll never use divide and conquer because that was the strategy used to separate entire communities in, you know, in sort of in my ancestral sort of lineage. So, and around the world. So I think, I think that to me, that gives me so much of pain because I think what has happened and the fallout of that is even when we do DEI work, there's a lot of mistrust and distrust among communities of color, wherein actually I, I think that as we continue to do this work together, especially those folks who are leading with their hearts, doing this work because you know you literally cannot step away from it because you know how urgent it is. I think that when we don't band together and collaborate with each other and recognize that many of us have faced oppression in very different ways and also in very similar ways. I think if we don't get together and we don't focus on building coalition based on that, I don't think we're really ever going to be able to make the change that we want to. I agree. And I think there's value, right, in like us recognizing that there are parts of this uh, journey that we share and there's parts that we don't share. And that's okay, right? Like speaking on both of them, like the reality of of our shared experience and our unique experience, um, when you think about just like across like black and brown communities, it's valuable. I'm a hundred percent agree that like there is this there's a constant angle that uh, white supremacist groups use to just really divide the non majority groups because again, like we're more divided, like we're, we're already 
not mm. the majority. So then like if we could splinter even further, that like that weakens our power. So agreed um, on the notion of, of collaboration. I was wondering how many people, you know, and listeners even know about the origins of the model minority myth that was actually, which is extremely harmful, by the way, to Asian communities and especially yeah. harmful to, uh, you know, Asian American communities. And we know we're facing a lot of pain and challenge right now, which is, by the way, not new, but, you know, has been, hasn't been talked about nearly enough until recently. And even then, um, I think I think what folks don't recognize is how much the model minority myth was created to pit Asian communities against black communities. And it had and in many very painful and sad ways, it has it, it's lived up to its purpose. You know, it's created incredible distrust. It's created incredible um, oppression, you know, among our communities, especially, you know, among immigrant and Asian communities upholding anti-blackness and white supremacy. And I think, you know, until we reject that notion, until we are very vocally critical of this entire, you know, this entire narrative that there is one community that, um, you know, excels because there's some natural ability that they have to excel. It's really harmful. It's very painful. And if we really want to make, again, the type of coalition and change that supposedly we're supposed to as folks in the DEI sort of space, however you identify, whether you're actually, you know, whether you're a consultant, whether you are, you know, a chief diversity officer, whether you're a leader who recognizes how important DEI is to your leadership, I, I think we have to very intimately understand how these narratives come about and how harmful they are so that we can reject them. One, amen, agreed, yes. I, I also I think that it's it's tough, right? Like it's tough to reject those narratives when, you know, if you've been indoctrinated, you know, to believe them for your whole life. And, you know, I think also like sadly, like part of I'm gonna speak to America is like, you know, navigating America and like climbing in America often involves stepping on black people right like it's kind yes. of like it's part yes. of like how you progress yes. right it's like it's like you know you like it's rare to see someone who's like proud like very loudly like pro-black pro-black woman pro-black trans mm. woman like that's not gonna mm. like those mm. people don't often aren't often the ones like sitting in the highest seats or getting the awards like the people sitting and getting those awards are the folks who you know keep quiet and mostly go along to get along. They may pop out and say a few, you know, cute things here and there, but they're not really out there really shaking the table like that. So it's tough. Like, you know, I, I don't, mm. you know, I, I think we're all like, I think we all are by various degrees, like victims of mm. you know, mm. these systems that have been mm. in place and, and incentivize mm. anti-blackness uh, mm -hmm. by, some, mm -hmm. by some degree. And so, and, and, and not only incentivize anti-blackness, but also like, you know, hold up whiteness as the ideal and, yes. the, and, and the goal, right? Yes. yes. So it's, it's tough. And you know what's sad is the, the reality of how, how much it harms you, as in you, a non-Black person, so myself, for example, how much it harms 
us to buy into that myth and uphold that. And I've realized it in so many small and big ways in my life, right? And and as an immigrant here. So I've lived now in the United States for a total of, I'd say, 11 years. Uh, there was a period in between I moved out and I came back. So continuously the last decade is, you know, I've been in, in America since 2012 continuously. Um, and what I will say is in the beginning, like all immigrants, uh, you know, and, and especially all immigrants who come in on these very problematic visa categories, but whatever it is, highly skilled immigrant, as I come in, clearly the way the path that we are shown very overtly is, you know, uphold white supremacy, buy into whiteness, buy into white ideals of professionalism, authenticity, blah, 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 and reject blackness. So be anti-black. So, you know, I come in and obviously I do not have the language. I do not have the maturity. I don't have, you know, the the lived experience at that point to even fully acknowledge my own sort of what I've experienced as an Asian woman, an Indian woman, a woman of color into this country. I don't understand it. And of course, so I set out and I'm like, yes, I'm going to get a professional job. I'll be in the technology industry first as a journalist. And every day in so many ways, that approach failed me every day, you know, from, from, from all, I mean, there's the, you know, there's what folks call microaggressions. I call them exclusionary acts and behaviors, but from, from dealing with those to never finding myself represented, to never really feeling like I could be myself around anyone later on, as time went on, uh, probably the biggest, I'd say slap in the face for me, um, and I know the word slap right now is controversial. So uh, the the, bi- the biggest, the, the moment where I think I, the mirror was really held up to me about how painful and lonely this approach was, was when I became a mother and becoming a mother of color here in a very white city in Seattle, really not being able to connect with anyone, being rejected by white parents, you know, though the journey supposedly of parenthood and i know and i know you know this as well um and you know the journey of parenthood is supposedly supposed to you know admit you into this club where you can then ad nauseum talk about you know sleep cycles and you know whatever it is potty training and blah, blah, blah. you know like it's supposed to give you access to this club where magically everyone's supposed to connect and feel empathy and what i found was the deepest lack of empathy of actual harmful behavior of actual rejection when i became a mother of color and so began in many ways the process of decolonization for me where i started recognizing that not only is my proximity and privilege to have proximity to whiteness through my accent, through you know my ability to speak English, blah, 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 my education. But actually, it was as if I was slowly suffocating in all these years in trying to live up to this ideal of whether it was subconsciously the model minority myth, whether it was the anti-Blackness that I clearly had, right? I, I did not have friends of color really and i definitely did not have any close black friends and and really working to decolonize myself really in many ways trying to save myself from this notion's gas that i was 
inhaling every day. And, and I think, and I think that's something, and I, and I actually now pity people when I see them who, you know, who, especially immigrants, especially people in my own community, in the South Asian community, who think that they're going to somehow their, their road to freedom um, is by aligning with white supremacy and whiteness and, and, and upholding anti-blackness. I feel sorry for them because they will always be hurting by doing that. Ooh. Rusha could come in with the bomb sound, man. Put the air horns right here. That was crazy. Oh, thank you, thank you. It's honest. It's honest. I haven't, I haven't said this to. I, I mean, I've said this in my circles of girlfriends, and you know, whatever it is, like over glasses of wine. But to be able to say this on a podcast, it, it, it's because you create that space and honesty and. You you asked me. You asked me to explain, right? You asked me to explain what does it mean to be a non-black person in this field. And what I'm saying to you is the only way that I have ever that I have even cl- come close to feeling like I am who I was born to be is now over the last actually I'd say you know five to six years since my son was born. But mm. it's only now that I feel like I'm getting closer to who I was always meant to be, and that is through the very, very strong rejection of anti-Blackness. That is the strong, it is the strong investigation of what is my role as a non-Black person and where I need to step back and get the hell out of the way too, um, as well as build that coalition and collaboration. Well, I love it. You know, I I I feel like, you know, that really leads us well into, you know, the latest book that you wrote, Inclusion on Purpose, an Intersectional Approach to Creating Culture, creating a culture of belonging at work. And then you also had a forward uh, from uh, from Ijeoma Oluo. Um, yes. First of all, I mean, how did you get that forward? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, can I tell you that I'm probably the luckiest person in the world where Ijeoma and I knew each other. We both live in the Seattle area. She was the editor at large of a women-run um, media website that uh, was started in 2015 called uh, The Establishment. We did shot three years later. Um, and I, in many ways, got to know Ijeoma. I mean, it was clear. She was, she, I mean, her her voice is so deep and so resonant, so clear and so brilliant. And I, you know, was lucky to experience that before she became the Ijeoma. And, um, you know, we, we, we continue to be friends. Um, we now, you know, have spent quite a, you know, a fair amount of time together. Never enough because, you know, obviously she's super booked and busy. <laughs> booked and busy. Um, but also someone whose um, generosity, honestly, is, again, unparalleled. You know, again, like really back to this idea of collaboration. Like there are people and there are leaders who say, oh, collaboration and like, da, da, da. like, I really believe in this. And, you know, this is great. And again, says they say it as a buzzword. And then there are people, I mean, someone like Ijeoma considered writing my forward at a time where her house burnt down. This is public information. Um, so I'm not saying anything folks don't know. Hopefully you are aware of this horrific thing that happened. Um, her house burnt down. She literally left with the clothes on her back um, with her family. Uh, she's, of course, had horrific harassment and abuse online. Um, and 
just and even you know even at that time at such a painful and difficult time in her life still recognize that hey my platform and my words are going to and i you know she's so humble that <laughs> i don't know if she actually even recognized that but literally thought i think to herself that hey there's this person whom you know i believe in and when you believe in someone you don't do it in quiet right you don't do it quietly mm. and um and and that and that is it i mean literally for her to show up in that way and then of course she was kind enough to host my launch at town hall seattle um and i, I literally i literally would not be the person I am if I didn't meet Ijeoma. And actually, I met Ijeoma at a time, first, the first time we met, I was, you know, I was about to be pregnant. And then, and then so she, she kind of knew me while I was going through this journey. And then certainly of motherhood and motherhood so white and so painful and so lonely. And, and I think, I think when you see someone in their whole journey. And in many ways, I, I have no doubt I made many mistakes. I said a lot of stupid, you know, stuff. I won't, <laughs> I won't curse, but I'm sure I said a lot of stupid things along the way and certainly must have shown my um, ignorance and I'm, I'm, I'm sure anti-blackness too. And f to be able to be forgiven and to be able to be amplified and to be given a platform knowing that you know, it, it, with, with sort of that level of of actual trust in me, I mean, honestly, it is one of the most humbling experiences in my life. Well, let's talk about you know. First of all, as it's that's a beautiful thing to hear, and like I think having someone being willing to like kind of work with you and grow with you and and share with you, right? Because a lot there's so much seeming like out, in, especially in the public arena, there's so much pressure to be perfect, right? Like, you know, there's really little grace to learn and grow and make mistakes. Um, so that's, that's, that's incredible. Um, let me ask you this, you know, inclusion on purpose. There's so many books of everyone's out here trying to write a book right now, right? Like in this era, <laughs> like everybody's writing a book, like talk to me about where do you feel like your, your book, it differentiates from, I'm not going to say the noise because I'm not I'm not going to just put mm -hmm. people's books. Um, <laughs> but there is a lot of noise out there. Just it's a lot of noise out <laughs> to there, be clear. It's noisy out there, though. It so, is noisy. So, so, so talk to me about about how how you believe yours uh, differentiates itself. Can I tell you that I went into the book, this book process, kicking and screaming. I did not intend to write a book. Um, another book, I wrote The Diversity Advantage, Fixing Gender Inequality in the Workplace back in 2015, um, intended really, my thought was, <laughs> in some ways, it was like those old school brochures, you know, when you would, <laughs> when you would print stuff on your, in your, on your janky little printer in your house, and then you'd staple it, and you'd hand yes, it out, like, yes. <laughs> like those zines and things. I mean, I was a huge fan of those. I, and my mom has, you know, my very embarrassing, like, books from when I was six and seven, when I would do that. So yeah. I intended that sort of like that, like a bit of a playbook off, like, oh, well, you know, leaders want, care about diversity um let you know let me write a small short playbook where hopefully they'll read it and they'll you know they'll be like oh now i have all the actions and of course silly little me naive little me nothing like that happened obviously and i have to say that you know the whole 
process for in in many ways did leave me thinking like hmm, you know people say they want to make change but they don't actually want to make change like even if you tell them these are the ways to make change they actually don't want to make change and i know i sound really naive saying this but it was it was definitely hard to see that it was definitely hard to go through that process so i came into the book process um without any without any sort of intention to write a book i had written an article about how corporate diversity efforts leave out women of color. I interviewed my dear friend, three-time book author, Minda Hartz, for that yes, article. Yes, yes. Uh, love Minda. Love her so much. And by the way, it's her birthday today. So, it Minda, happy, happy birthday, my dear. I sent her a little message. But, um, what? I mean, truly, what a trailblazer. Truly, talk about grace talk about leadership talk about collaboration amplification um so side note we love you minda uh, <laughs> uh, yes, totally. yes, yes, yes. um but you know i so th this article comes out and an agent reaches out to me who is a young woman of color literally has not um i think by the time we started collaborating like i don't think she had done a book by herself like she had not been an agent for a book by herself she was assisting another agent and she just said she said richika i read this article i think this is really important how you write about the importance of women of color in corporate diversity efforts the reality is you know most corporate diversity equity inclusion efforts focus on white women and harm women of color and i'd be curious if you've given thought to writing another book and i have to say i spent a long a, a long time after we reached out dilly after she reached out dilly dallying you know it was more than i think it was close to nine months between the time she reached out and i actually thought about putting a proposal together because i was just so kind of like what you, you you talked about the noise there's so much of noise there's are people really interested in making change i thought maybe the way that i can you know the change i can influence in the world is actually through consulting and through the actual working directly with clients who were, wanted to make change and some of them really have but i just couldn't get a lot of what she said miley beal my agent um who is now with arc literary agency uh, it just couldn't get it out of my mind. You know, a lot of the conversation where she was like, look, like not enough people are talking about DEI from this lens. You know, a lot, a lot of the focus is still on, you know, women as a whole and, you know, whatever, which means white women or, you know, or allyship, but it's not really talking about what is, what is it like when you're a woman of color? And she knew that my perspective, again, kind of what I said to you, is that there is a lot of similarity in the experiences, the actual quote unquote microaggressions or exclusionary behavior or words we hear is, you know, yes, it can, it can be different, but the experience of being overlooked, underestimated, second guessed, you know, really, in many ways, humiliated, gaslit in the workplace is actually quite similar. Yeah. And so it became clear that, you know, this was the time to do it. I shopped the book in 2020 before the murder of George Floyd. And I am very proud in many ways of the final product that just came out because in many ways, I I was I was able to write the book I wanted to write. I remember shopping a book proposal out that was 
not as, you know, I wasn't exactly saying the things I wanted to say, right? I was, I was still sugarcoating it. I was still, I mean, you have, I mean, the publishing industry is 90% white, right? 85% of acquisitions editors are white. And even now, when I go back and see the list of people who my agent sent my proposal out to, I think it was 90 something percent white. And so, and so I, yeah, yeah, I I mean, I, I just, I needed, I'm just really proud that in this moment in time, I was able to put something out that really felt like, this is how I feel. And I'm saying the things I want to say. That's a blessing. You know, I remember like, it was like about a year ago, like I was entertaining the idea of, of uh, accepting a book deal and, and writing about, and writing about black and brown experiences in the workplace. But I wanted to do it from like a, a perspective of like really spotlighting like actual stories that Living Corporate had gathered over time and like, um, and their experiences, like our experiences in the corporate space. And I wanted to, I wanted it to be something much, I wanted it to be something a little bit more intimate and like really centering um, those experiences. And I remember having conversations with several folks who were like, wanted me to pivot it and make it into like a book on allyship or a book. Oh my gosh. Right. So like, and so like, it's just, it's super interesting. Like in this space, like um, how, how hard it still is to really center and like have conversation, like have the conversations you want to have, especially if they don't center or somehow explicitly serve the majority, right. If they don't, you know, and so it's, so that's a blessing, right. That you're able to, you're able to write, this, write what you want it to write and like you can look at something and like you're you're comfortable with you look at the book and you see a reflection of yourself as opposed to something you don't recognize you know what I mean absolutely and I and I have to say because in many ways I think my first book in some ways was that and I did mm. I was very you know I did very much pander to a white audience a white leadership audience and center case studies and experiences from white leaders who were trying to make change for gender diversity. Um, and I think more than that, when I think about this book, I that this, that centering of stories, and this is why I really hope that, you know, you continue to, your book, your book gets out and people read it because it's the centering of stories that changes minds and hearts. It's not the data. And that's another thing white supremacy will tell you. And I know, I'm, I know for sure you must have heard this where it's like, oh, well, tell me the data about why DEI matters and give me this data and give me that data. And, you know, that you, you can, you can spout the data until you're blue in the face. Cause I certainly, you know, I have a memory where I really commit all these facts to memory. And then the, the reality is that doesn't change minds. It doesn't move you to action either. And in many ways, they just try and confuse you. It's like a bait and switch tactic where they're like, oh, give us all the data. And you're like, here's all the data. Like, here's 60 pages of data. And then they're like, oh, well, actually, we've decided we don't want to we want to go with the white consultant or we want the white person to speak. (laughs) So much of that, like so much of that when people ask like for, you know, like like when they when they give you they ask you questions or tasks to justify your presence or justify whatever you're trying to do. A lot of that stuff is just busy work 
um, and an excuse to tell you no. Like they like like they were never going to say yes. Right. Right. So it's just like, oh, yo, can you just oh, can you show me like your stats on this? Or can you well, what research did you to get? To? And it's like, <laughs> yo, like I'm not blind. Like I see who y'all be bringing up here. Mm-hmm, right. Like mm-hmm. and whatever it is, like these people are not qualified to talk about anything. You just like them. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's just it's so interesting. Like the older I get as an aside, like my dad, my dad, like he and I are very similar. And like one day he told me, it was like a couple years ago, he was like, he's like, son, listen, he's like, you know, nothing really changes after high school. Like it's pretty much the same. It's just mm-hmm. that money is real. He's like, but mm-hmm. everything is, it's popularity. It's mm-hmm. who knows who it's being cool or being perceived as cool by yes. the right people. Um, and just being in the in crowd, right? Like it's, it, it's, it's, it is not like things don't really change. Like people, the world is very much like high school is really like your your testing ground before the real world and i was just like dang and the older i get i just look around like you know this is some high school stuff because like why do i see the same people popping up at all these panels why do i see the same Mm. people dropping Mm -hmm. these books and why do i see the same people who are saying the same nonsense Mm -hmm. like like in all these big spaces just like oh okay because they're the in person like we made a decision that they're just going to be the representation for whatever so um anyway Shout out to Mr. Nunn, if if that's your father's name, that is because my, that is my because name. because that because um yeah, it's exactly that. That is so profound and it's so true. And again, I it it really breaks my heart how that popularity contest in many ways um, matters actually, sadly, a lot more than um you know when you were in high school. Right. Because yeah. it, it makes it makes such a material difference. In many ways, it is the difference between life and death, between health and not health, um, between, you know, living a life where you have some chance to be who you really are and to self-actualize if we think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and not. And and that's what's that. And that's truly what starts to happen. And and, and much more for people of color much more for black people much more for women of color uh with other marginalized identities it's interesting like as we think about like this season i started off this conversation kind of talking about like the state of this work in this space like i'm curious like as we look at this decade like do you have any predictions i've been asking like pretty much everyone's been on living corporate this year like, do you have any predictions about like where the space is going this decade as we look at like the shifting political landscape and like mm. this new this new generation of worker coming into the workplace and like what do you what do you anticipate about corp- corporate DEI? So let me let me start by giving you my my true hope and this and I have and I have a couple of things that make me optimistic. One is I am lucky until recently until the book came out. I taught quite regularly. I taught college classes in journalism. And this new generation of folks about to enter the workplace are not putting up with the same BS that the few, that the past generations of people, especially people of color, had no choice but to put up with. And those options, that ability to choose um, and of course, I am talking about a certain subset of of students, you know, students who are college educated, who have that privilege. But really, more and more, I can see that my students are not 
they're not about to work for the organizations that I would have given my right leg to have worked for at their age because they're like, nope, I, I, you know, I need to work for a place where is where I see true representation, where I can see, you know, managers and leaders care about employees um, are also climate forward. I mean, obviously this, every generation that comes into being obviously is facing much more of a threat than ever before as to whether they'd even have a planet to grow old in. So I think these sorts of things are starting to matter more in a way that certainly I never remembered, even when I was back in grad school. And so that makes me very optimistic. They don't want to put up with bullshit. The second thing that kind of makes me optimistic and what I hope that my voice adds and very much is in course with, in the background, hopefully even, is the importance of this coalition between communities of color, between me as, you know, as an Indian woman, an immigrant woman who has benefited from the model minority myth and benefited from anti-Blackness, and who now says that there is absolutely no way that I'm going to let that continue, at least for myself and as for as many people as I can influence with my work. I think building that coalition gives me hope that more of us are going to band together and say, like, we're not putting up with exclusionary practices anymore. Um, and I and I and I'm seeing that I'm really starting to see that more than again ever before. And then there's a part of me that, yeah, I think that there are more white people, I think kind of, you know, I think of Idioma's book, Mediocre. I think there are more white people, especially surprisingly white men who recognize that they, you know, that whiteness and white supremacy and this promised land that they were promised because they're white men was a pyramid scheme in many ways. Right? Mm. And they are just as harmed by this hyper capitalism, you know, racism by the system that we have set up. They're just as harmed as anybody else, as the people that they were supposed to have power over. And so I'm very hopeful of a future where there's much more power with than power over. I'm not saying everyone by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm, but I see that much more than ever before. I, I see hope in, I, I live here in the Seattle area on the one hand, certainly we have seen what's, what happens when you give megalomaniacs too much money, usually yes. white men. And yes. on the other hand, I see what it's like when more women, yes, white women, but I'm thinking of Mackenzie Scott, who has given away you know, really unrestricted funding, unrestricted money, right? Grants to organizations led by people of color and and really focus that in her philanthropy and set a model which frankly has never existed before. So I, it's, it's, it's that balance. It's that, you know, cautiously optimistic focus that I, you know, that I like to operate by, because otherwise, my God, I would just be on fire every day burning down, you know, if I, if I didn't have that hope. And I know you know this as someone with a young child. I am someone with a young child. I want to remain optimistic for this five-year-old too. Yeah, I want to be optimistic, you know. Um, I want to be optimistic. I'm not optimistic. Let me own it though. I'm not. But yeah. I'd like to be. Yeah. Um, it's tough, yeah. right? Like it's tough when you, you know, like, you know, we're in this world in, in real time. Um, I do, I will say that my biggest, 
what gives me the biggest hope is the is to see this generation coming up right like my the generation my siblings belong to 100 percent agree they they just don't they're not gonna take it i'm really just very curious i'm very curious mm. about like the conflict that's going to arise if let's say the the GOP continues to gerrymander mm, and like mm, and mm. like and and gather political power. So mm. you're gonna have like this. You're gonna have this white supremacist political uh, mm. federal power mm. against this like really mobilized and energized population <laughs> community or like grassroots group. And mm. I'm just cu- I'm curious. I'm like I'm curious on what what that coming to a head is going to look like. You know what I mean? Mm. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a it's a good question and it's a good point. And honestly, I you know, and this is one of the reasons why white supremacy is so toxic because what it has done is it has kept so many Americans with and, and I say this as someone who's not American, who is an immigrant and who sees this as an outsider. It has kept so many Americans who are actually aligned in so many ways apart because of white supremacy. And and I know this and I've and I've seen this. I see this a lot in my especially my white students who are coming up, you know, in their who are now in their late teens or early 20s who again have found that they have been completely betrayed by this promised land that their whiteness was supposed to grant them because of forces like what's happening in politics because of of course the the very very real threat continued threat of trumpism um without a doubt without a doubt yeah um i want to thank you like i feel like we could continue going this is a long conversation like a a longer pod i'm thankful that we were able to have it um i appreciate you i'm excited about everything that you're doing uh Ruchika, uh, as well as your book inclusion on purpose and intersectional approach to creating a culture of belonging at work written by you and um, Ajioma Aluo, uh, forward rather by Ajioma Aluo. And, I, you know, it's a phenomenal, it's phenomenal. In fact, I want everybody to check out the link in the show notes. Make sure you cop a copy of, and this is not an ad. You know what I'm saying? Which, like, you didn't come on here trying to press a book, no. you know? You know what I'm saying? You didn't slide me somebody like, yo, like, I'm the opposite. Like, I, I will say, Zach, I'm the opposite in the sense that I really, um, I hope folks who need my book read it and they find it and there's validation for people who have been hurt and there's validation for the efforts of people who want to really practice allyship as a verb not a noun but by no means am I like this is the book go out and buy it you must buy it like I have no that is not that is the opposite of whom I am really I know I I received that because I remember we were supposed to interview earlier you were like Zach look I'm over here I don't want to be over you, you. You you know what you sent me. I was like, dang, I really appreciate how authentic that was. Uh, we pushed it back. Remember? I do. I'm. I just. Yeah. I just. This is not. This. This is not what I enjoy doing. I like reading. I like writing. I like being in community. I don't like to be, you know, the voice or the center. So thank you for making it really comfortable and safe for me to do so. And I appreciate you so much. I appreciate everything you do at Living Corporate and in every way that you show up. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. Um, Rushika, we will talk to you soon. You're a friend of the show. I look forward to having you back and not, and not even around when you pull it. In fact, you know what? It'll be like you haven't maybe written a book in mad long. You're just going to slide back. Like it's cool. Please. <laughs> okay. and, and maybe next time I'll interview you. <laughs> oh, snap. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> Put those journalism chops to back, back into training. You know, it's been a bit rusty, but I will come back into it. I love it. I love it. We'll talk to you soon.
<laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. And we're back. Yo, thank you so much again to Rucha Katoshin. Thank you for all of your work. Thank you for your book. Make sure y'all check it out in the show notes. She's really humble about it. She doesn't do promo. She is a friend. So I consider her a friend. So I want to make sure y'all check out the link in the show notes. Give it a look. And um, yeah, till next time, y'all. Catch you later. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.